I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about the plight of the railroad workers and their thoughts on President Joe Biden and Congress's action taken to avert a railroad strike. Joining us to do that are Jeff Kurtz and Marilee Tiller of Railroad Workers United, as well as Maximilian Alvarez, Editor-in-Chief of The Real News Network. With that in mind, let's get right to the conversation as we dig into the railroad workers side of the story with Jeff Merrily and Maximilian. Welcome to Parallax Views. Uh, we have a roundtable on this edition of the show with Maximilian Alvarez of The Real News and also uh, Jeff Kurtz and Merrily Taylor, who are involved with Railroad Workers United, uh, which has been in the news lately. How are you guys doing today? Well, great. Thanks, JG. I'm well, but I'm angry. <laughs> oh, yeah, we are all angry. So just to start out, I guess this issue with uh, railroad workers wanting sick leave and, and having issues with the uh, carriers over it. This has been going on for a longer time than just this past week. So I don't know, Max, if you want to uh, give an overview of how long this has been going on, or uh, if you feel Jeff had, um, or Marilee, you could maybe talk more to that. Well, what I'll, I'll say just to get us started and um, yeah, Jeff, Jeff and Mary Lee, you know, they've, they've got more expertise. They got lifetimes worth of expertise that, that I never could have, but 
Um, what I'll do is just sort of set the table a little bit, because um, I imagine a lot of folks who aren't involved with the railroads, like me, kind of had you know a certain entry point this year, um, where they begin they began to sort of see you know from one story right how big of a clusterfuck this whole situation is and how we ended up here so um you know just telling my own origin story um getting invested in reporting on the crisis on the nation's freight railroad system um the first interview that i did on this subject was actually with jeff uh we recorded it back in January, um, when I learned that there were 17,000 uh, employees for BNSF Railway, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, which is owned by Warren Buffett, um, who were prepared to go on strike over the implementation of uh, this new draconian points-based attendance policy called, quote-unquote, high-vis, right? There's a very sort of Orwellian tenor to the whole thing, right? Like high visibility, right? And when you when you already have like, you know, engineers and conductors being heavily, heavily surveilled with, you know, cameras in the cabs and stuff like that, it kind of has an eerie sort of tone. Uh, and rightfully so, because high viz is, you know, frankly, uh, a, an injustice and a catastrophe. And it's been just as big of a disaster as workers said it was going to be. And so, like I said, the 17,000 folks uh, represented by Smart TD and the BLET, that's the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and the Transportation Division of the Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transportation Division or Transportation Union. Um, they were prepared to go on strike over this policy. And in fact, the you know union presidents for Smart TD and BLET released a joint statement calling it the worst attendance policy they had ever seen implemented on the railroads ever. Um, and then, uh, much like you know we've seen this week with uh, Congress uh, putting their uh, hands on the scales, a U.S. District Court judge at the behest of BNSF Railway blocked workers from striking over high-vis uh, which they were prepared to do on February 1st of this year. And so that that was like that initially caught my eye. And that's when I connected with Jeff uh, and we did a great interview at The Real News. But as Jeff kept telling me both on and off that call, he was like, you got to understand, like this, this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? The problems um, th this is indicative of systemic problems that have been brewing in this industry for years, if not decades and that you know really kind of was what prompted me and my colleague Mel Buer uh, to continue covering uh this issue throughout the year talking to different railroaders at different points in the year Mel even did some on the ground reporting at a solidarity rally in Illinois and so on and so forth and um what i would say is that what i didn't realize at the time there were two big things one was i was like man how how can a court block that many workers from striking right then i got a crash course on the railway labor act and and i realized um as i've been trying to kind of communicate to other people on other interviews that labor relations on the nation's railroads are not governed by the national labor relations act like most jobs they are governed by the railway labor act 
which was passed in the 1920s after uh, U.S. politicians and uh, business and, and business titans, um, you know, were shitting their pants after workers in the United States for decades had shown just how much power they had to bring the economy to its knees by striking on the railroads. There were massive strikes in the late 1900s or 1800s. There were uh, massive strikes. There was a massive strike in the early 20th century. And so the Railway Labor Act was pushed through to essentially prevent railroad workers from striking. That is why we've gone through this in whole long rigmarole of a process of negotiations, mediation boards, a presidential emergency board, like 8,000 cooling off periods, and ultimately to end up where we ended up this week, where um, you know Congress has the authority under the Railway Labor Act to um, step in and force uh, railroad workers to accept a contract, even if the membership uh, has voted that contract down, um, so on and so forth. So all I would so that was the one one thing that I really that really stood out to me was learning the ins and outs of the Railway Labor Act, and then seeing that process play out in real time over the course of the year. I won't go into all of that, but we saw you know when the negotiations between the twelve unions representing over a hundred thousand rail workers in the freight industry and um, the conference representing the the rail carriers, i.e. the companies that own the railroads, their negotiations were officially declared at an impasse in the late spring uh, or, or sorry, early summer, then cooling off period. Biden appoints a presidential emergency board that releases its recommendations in August um, and yada, yada, yada. Right. So we saw that whole process play out. And, I, and we were talking to workers throughout all of it. But the other thing, just to go back to that BNSF story from uh, the beginning of the year, what also started to become clear to me was I was like, why would you why would you implement a policy like this when it's so reviled by your workers? Right. And you work in such an, a, a vital industry and workers do so much essential labor, which we and we called them essential work. Railroad workers were deemed essential. They went to work during covid-19. Many of them, because of attendance policies like these, have actually had to go into work with covid because they don't have paid sick days, as we all know, yada, yada, yada. So I was wondering, why would you implement this policy when it's so unpopular it, it 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 destroys you know workers runs them into the ground and that's when the the background context that Jeff Ron Kamenko and all the other great folks from Railroad Workers United and beyond really started to help me out because what i realized is that this is indicative of the larger corporate philosophy that has taken hold of the rail industry and in fact that has taken hold of many other industries right because what that attendance policy is is an essential uh, part of this this sort of like corporate cult of the operating ratio, right? Where railroads realized a long time that they essentially had a, a, an oligopolistic oligopolistic control and a vital uh, infrastructural system and an uh, essential part of the nation's supply chain. No one's out here building new railroad lines, right? So they could essentially just capture that jack up prices and do whatever they want because all the shippers and customers who have to use the freight rail system, they're not just going to be able to unload all that onto trucks. It's just not feasible. So you have a captured uh, 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 market here. And what railroaders realized when Wall Street really took over the railroads was we could either make more money by moving more freight, which is what we assume the railroads are there to do, or we could actually move less freight 
and we could reduce our operating costs as much as possible by slashing our workforce year after year, right? I've mentioned this figure many times, but the railroads in like 1980 used to have over a hundred, uh, over 500,000 workers on the freight railroads. And over 40 years, they've slashed that to around 130. And since 2015 alone, the major, the, the seven major uh, uh, freight rail carriers have eliminated over 30% of their workforce. So like when you keep cutting people, you, and you pile more work onto fewer workers and you make the trains longer and more unwieldy and more dangerous, right? You know, that is why these companies have to implement these draconian attendance policies. Cause in the past, when someone like Jeff or Mary Lee, like was too tired or got sick, they would mark off and they say, you know what? I, I need a couple of days off. So then the reserve people who were waiting in the wings would then fill in, hop, get on that train, and the system would keep moving. But when you cut so many, you know, railroaders over the course of those years, you have no more reserves left. And so that's why it's so disastrous in the railroad, in the rail carriers minds when people take unscheduled time off or they have more flexibility with their scheduling. Um, that is why they have to essentially shackle workers like Marilee and Jeff to their uh, stations, because that's the way that you, again, keep labor costs at the absolute bare minimum the entire time. So sorry, I know I've been talking a lot, but those are the two things that really opened my eyes while reporting on this. So Jeff and, and Marilee, do you want to um, add anything to what Maximilian has already said? And then I had a few questions uh, for both of you after that. But Jeff, what, what would you like to add anything to what Max had to say? And then Marilee, we can get your um, sort of take on things. Uh, uh, Max did an excellent job, especially for somebody that's never worked in the, the industry, because it is hard to understand if you haven't worked in this industry. I hired out in 1974. And at that time, you know, that's almost 50 years ago. At that time, you could take off whenever you needed to. Uh, you know, if you, you, you had the same type of schedule that we have now, but if I worked two weeks in a row and, you know, I was in a, I, I had a family issue or I was in a crossing accident or something like that, where I needed to take off, I could do it. I could, take up to nine days off if I needed to. And, you know, at other times you might work a, a month in a row or something and take four or five days off and, and take a nice little side trip after you work that much. It was, I think it was 1999 when there was an arbitration ruling on the, um, uh, the attendance policies. And it, it was really a convoluted ruling. And, and you know, you, you get these uh, because a lot of the arbitrators don't understand the conditions we're working under. But the, the arbitrator said uh, this ruling should not be used to affect other rulings. But in this case, I'm going to say that um, the railroads can unilaterally set their own uh, uh, attendance policies. Well, they use the, the railroads and everybody else, the courts and everybody else have used that uh, ruling ever since, ever since 1999. And um, we have experienced since 1999 uh, more restrictions on, on taking off. You know, then it went to three days you could only take off. And then, uh, you know, you had to get permission to take off. And then they came up with this low hours performance policy, which still nobody knows what that is. It's, it's uh, the railroads 
say you're not working enough hours in, in uh, the month, although they they are the ones that control how much you work. Uh, and and it, it was just things like that that went on and on. And then uh, I retired in 2014. And um, this high biz policy came into being. And it basically said, um, no more time off. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to take time off for anything. If you do, you will be penalized. Like we, we had a guy that uh, was driving to work. A woman pulled out in front of him about a mile from his terminal. Uh, he got in a wreck, totaled his car. It was totally her fault. He got penalized. <laughs> I, you know, it, there's nothing he could do about this. And, uh, you know, th those stories just keep going on and on and on about, you know, people being sick or having family members sick that get penalized. So uh, this was the, the, you know, I, you could, you could see this was coming. And, and when Max and I did our interview, uh, we, we discussed the, the fact that there's going to be health problems because of this. And, um, you know, not just physical problems, but mental health problems because of the fact that you need to take that time off. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Did you get the trip model that I sent you? I, the train, train model. model. Uh, yes. Yeah. And if you can see how complex that is and the, the uh, it's, it was, I, I'll admit it was a little bit hard for me to understand all aspects of it. Yeah. But. And, and I would have to go through it, but look at all the rules that, that are in there. Uh, you know, you've got uh, 900 and, and that, that was in 2010, you had 964 pages of uh, code of federal regulations. You've got about 600 of your general code of operating rules on your home railroad. Uh, you've got uh, daily bulletins and notices and they all change by the minute. And so that's why, you know, you're, you're under that pressure for at least 12 hours a day. And when you never get any time off, it just wears on you. It's not just the fatigue, but it's the stress too. And, you know, Max and I discussed the fact that there's going to be problems. Well, lo and behold, we've had four people that have died. Uh, and I could, I would attribute it to these, uh, to, to these policies uh, two guys actually died on locomotives. Uh, we had one guy commit suicide. And then another one, he was a local chairman. It was just about a month and a half ago, 49 years old, uh, died in his sleep, uh, you know, because of complications from stress in working like this. So, um, you know, this, this is, this is not just a, a convenience for people. This is, this is a necessity that we have to get this stuff back. So anyway, I'll turn it over to Mary, Mary Lee. If I may, I, I just, first of all, want to agree with the very first things that Max was talking about. There is a deep, deep rage amongst the working people on the railroad, on the, particularly the class ones today. And I want to get back to that after we talk about this attendance policies and stuff, the root causes of these issues. Deep, there's just a deep, deep uh, anger at the Democratic Party administration of Joe Biden and his uh, hench person in arms, Pelosi, as well as every other of the electoral parties, of both electoral parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, 
who served to show their true colors by their actions, which is anti-labor to the core, anti-working class to the core. And we see concretely yet once again, how they're gonna intervene in our democratic elected organizations of our unions. It makes no sense for us as we look at it, as, as trade unionists here look at it, 55% of our uh, membership of all 12 unions, because that's how we're organized uh, in craft unions, voted this tentative agreement down. None of, no tentative agreement that passed, passed by any more than a razor thin margin. So we, the fact is that President Biden, his and his entire administration and his allies that voted to force this down our throats are the antithesis of what labor unionists need to be and to act today. I, I just wanted to get that out there because I, I've already fielded numerous calls, including just from people that got the press release, uh, uh, common people, a couple of unionists from the Teamsters call me and say, what can we do to support you, so on and so forth. So I think that's it. So, and I want to raise that first because the fact is it doesn't matter what Congress votes on. Because until this core issue of the, of the surf-like conditions that we are working in, until those issues are resolved, there will not be labor peace in whatever that means. I mean, in whatever that means. There is not just disgruntled. We are not disgruntled. We are deeply angry at both the government and the rail bosses the government in particular for, for plopping themselves front and center on the side of the rulers. In this case, the one, the 10th of 1% that, run, that own the railroads and reap all this and have ruined our supply lines on the railroad already with their quest for the almighty dollar. I'm sorry, I knew you might've intervened there, JG. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, I, I think you bring up a point. This isn't just merely about being disgruntled. This is about being I would say the railroad workers have been put to the end of their rope, you know, and I find it interesting when I see certain pundits uh, or, or just people I even talk to around here, they'll say to me, well, you know, Biden had to do it because even though he, he's Mr. Pro-Union, you know, this could hurt the economy. It could hurt the economy. It could hurt the economy. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, why don't you tell the the, the big corporations that I mean, why can't they give a little to the workers? Maybe it's they're they're the ones tanking the economy. That well, I, I'd also like to add, if I if I might, that uh, it's not, the railroads are tanking the economy. The railroads' refusal to move the freight of this nation by embargoing different uh, shippers, by keeping the workforce uh, cut down to to such a level that they claim that we should be in under a system of indentured servitude to serve them, that they created this. They are embargoing the shippers. We didn't do that. We worked. We showed up throughout the entire pandemic under, under extremely egregious conditions where the carriers even told us they, they couldn't provide things like disinfectant in the, in where we go to work. And yet we're risking our lives every single day in, during this pandemic. And of course, we're, we have to have 
face-to-face -face interaction. We have filthy surfaces that we work on. Everybody in the who's ever worked in rail will tell you it's filthy. It's filthy. So I, I just wanted to, to reiterate that uh, that part of, of what you were trying to get at. Well, and can I, can I just hop in on that oh, point sure. real quick, Marilee? Because I think like Marilee put it perfectly, right? And, and it, it is the rail carriers who are tanking the supply chain. It is the rail character, rail carriers who have been holding the economy hostage, uh, running workers into the ground. And that's been honestly one of the things that I've been most furious about all week, um, you know, like Marley and, and Jeff, you know, been on the PR warpath doing everything that we can to at least correct the corporate media narratives that, you know, people in this country are being bombarded with relentlessly. Um, and, you know, I don't I, I hope we've made a dent. But if nothing else, I really, really hope that that it's been implanted in people's minds to ask that very question, because we saw uh, you know, uh, this week, uh, just like we saw in September when we were rapidly approaching the deadline, which and that deadline in September, which folks will remember because everyone was freaking out about a, the potential of a rail shutdown then as well. So that deadline was the end of the 30 day cooling off period that uh, was initiated upon the release of the presidential emergency board recommendations in late August. And so after those 30 days, uh, strikes initiated by the, the rail unions or lockouts initiated by the rail character carriers could officially begin. And so everyone was freaking out. They're like, what happens if there's a rail strike? You know, it's it's going to cost the economy uh, up to $2 billion a day, right? This is an industry generated figure that every, you know, corporate media outlet has just been regurgitating left and right. $2 billion a day, $2 billion a day. How can we possibly, you know, cope with that sort of economic damage, especially as the holidays approach, yada, yada, yada. So I want to say two things on that, and I'll toss it back to Marilee. One, economic, like disrupting the economic status quo, causing economic damage is the point of a strike. That is, that, that is the whole point of a strike. If you, it, it's like when, when people create those little like free speech zones where that's like in a, in a, a fenced off area, two miles away from the venue that they're protesting. If you, if you can strike without causing any economic damage to your employer, then you're not really striking. Right. So like that, you, you take the labor's greatest weapon out of their hands. So people talking about, Oh, like the damage that would be caused like, yeah, that's the fucking point. Um, pardon my language. But on the other side, I don't want to hear another corporate media pundit or politician cite that same $2 billion a day in, in uh, economic uh, damages if a rail shutdown happened, unless they can even muster a guess, a guesstimate. I'll take I'll take a ballpark estimate. If they could even offer an estimate for how much the rail carriers have cost the U.S. economy by, as we said, um, you know, operating on this cult of, you know, cutting costs, cutting labor, jacking up prices on all their shippers while spending tens of billions of dollars on stock buybacks and shareholder dividends. How much money has the economy lost per year? Because as Marilee said, the rail carriers are not moving the amount of freight that they need to be. How much have they cost the economy per day? Because the ports are all backed up to hell right now. Like you can't unload all that freight on trucks. It's just not feasible. But because of everything we've been talking here, because of the way 
Wall Street has taken over the rail industry and has turned it into this sort of money-making machine instead of a service that's meant an essential service to our supply chain. Um, you know, we're moving, like, like we said, we're moving less freight. That's costing the, uh, us all money, so on and so forth. So, like, we're not talking about the ways that the crisis that everyone is saying we averted is already here. Workers are the ones who are fighting that crisis. And we just all like stepped on there or Biden and Congress just stepped on them. And the carriers get to keep doing what they're doing because why would they do anything differently if this is the result they're going to get? Can I just add that the, the point, as Max said, of any strike is not to stand on a picket line in the winter in the Midwest or anywhere else and just, Stand around, have a cup of coffee. The point of a strike is to withhold our labor, which is the only leverage that workers have. To withhold our labor and to win, and to win as quickly and decisively as we can. So in terms of this, this bizarre idea that Biden and his a company have put out that, oh, it could be a never-ending strike. That's not our perspective. Our perspective is to bring in every other ally within the labor movement, from the longshoremen's on the West Coast, all the way to the machinists on the East Coast, to join us and to win this fight. I, I mean, I, I just think that that's absolutely important. I, I just had one other thing to say about this. It is my opinion my totally convinced opinion that rail workers have every right to strike, every right to strike, beginning with the moral imperative of people that others before us have put out like Martin Luther King, Eugene V. Debs and others in the, in the spirit of our brothers and sisters in the teachers unions, like in West Virginia, where it was illegal for them to go on strike, where they were told by their leaderships not to go on strike. And their response was to mobilize massive support, not only within the union, but across unions and other people, and to occupy the, the uh, state capital, the, the legislative uh, building, until the laws were passed. That, was the action of our fellow brothers and sisters, not in the same industry, but in the same thing. The civil rights movement, how would we have had a civil rights movement to fight the apartheid-like laws in the South that were codified in law? Jim Crow laws, we call them, but close to apartheid. They were they were one and millions upon millions of, of working people in this country of all shades, of all languages, of, of both genders. We, we were one to that fight and, and how the fight was carried out by SNCC, Martin, uh, civil, other civil rights organizations was by violating the law. The law was immoral and unjust and, and freedom fighters came and occupied seats that the law said was illegal for them to occupy. And in the course of the bloody assault by this government in, from the uh, local to the uh, not acting in time on the national level was against them, but, but it was a movement that won significant gains. 
So I think we have to be careful about who, who carries the moral high ground here. I, we don't live in a monarchy. We do live in a, uh, and I liked your word, Max, ole, uh, the oligopoly of the railroads, but I, I think I wouldn't be able to say that in any kind of serious conversation. My tongue would get tied, but it's the same thing. I, I just want to put that right out there front and center because uh, I don't think that the government has any more of a democratic right to keep us from striking. That, that isn't, shouldn't have more weight than our democratic rights enshrined in the constitution, the bill of rights and the other uh, constitutional amendments to organize ourselves politically, to organize ourselves socially, economically, and to mobilize ourselves and our allies in our own defense. And that defense right now is a part of that defending ourselves is withdrawing our labor. And that remains our democratic right. And I refuse to give up any ground on that question. Uh, uh, and JG, I, as far as is poor Joe Biden, I, I'd like to get back to what could he have done? The Railway Labor Act says that he can impose conditions on the railroad the same as he can on labor. He could have, he could have put this bill together with the seven uh, sick days together with the contract, but they separated it for a reason. They separated it because they didn't want it to pass. Was that he the biggest issue? The, not, not to interrupt you, but that, that was the big issue here. It was just all like seven sick days. I mean, that doesn't seem like much to ask for, you know. A half day a month. Asking, I mean, like, again, maybe not even about. seven, one. <laughs> they don't have any. Yeah. The, the problem, JG, is that we, uh, oh, Jeff, I didn't mean to step on here. I didn't mean to. No, I, I, I just want, he, uh, the, the president had all kinds of options. There was a, a, a report on ABC News that I just watched before I, I came on. It was awful. It, I mean, they, you know, it was poor Joe Biden. What, what? What could he have done? What could he have done? There was a million things he could have done. He's got a lot of power under the Railway Labor Act. He chose to do what he did to, to screw workers. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the bottom line. You, uh, Jeff, you had cut out for a second there um, when, uh, when I had said, you know, what you were asking for was seven sick days. I, I just was wondering if you could repeat yourself real briefly on that. Well, yeah, I, I just wanted to emphasize that's a half day a month, you know, a little over a half day a month. You know, that's going to break the railroads. Warren Buffett made over, he, he made twice as much in one day as what it would take to give the whole industry, I mean, all the railroads, seven sick days. But that this is, this is another part of the problem. We've got people like Warren Buffett that control these assets that should be used for the good of the American people. And this is a guy that's got more money than he could spend in probably 20,000 lifetimes. You know, this is gluttony. Do you want a glutton like this to control assets like this? Well, and like, I was wondering, um, since, since we're all here, right, I wanted to check one thing with, with you, Jeff and Marilee, like, because someone posed this question to me the other day. They were like, they're like, it, would it cost the rail industry that much to give, you know, workers seven days paid sick leave? You know, what's the estimate on that? And like what I said was I was like, no, I mean, like, again, we're talking the, the elephant in the room 
is we're not talking, this isn't the financial crash of 2008. We're not talking about an auto industry that might go under if it's not bailed out. These companies are raking in tens of billions of dollars of profit. Like they, uh, I think it was Union Pacific had its most profitable year ever last year. Sorry, you were going to say something, JJ? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I want to clarify this because I've had people say this to me too. Uh, like th they'll say to me, oh, well, don't they get, you know, paid days? Uh, so people have said to me, oh, well, in my job, uh, paid sick leave and paid vacation are, are just sort of combined together. And, and you know, what's the big deal, I guess? And I, I mean, I'm not sure the railroad worker situation is the same as what they're talking about. Well, it, it's it's a serious thing because that is, in fact, the narrative that the the carriers, the National Carrier Conference Committee, has come out with. Well, they can use sick, they can use vacation time, which frankly makes me want to. I just I, I said perhaps some of uh, your words, Max, <laughs> in a very rough way because you got to be kidding me. Are you crazy? We can't get time off. I just want to go back. The operating crafts that is the conductors union, the smart TD and the engineers union, the uh, BLET, that is those of us freight workers that carry trains from one city to another in its, in its journey across the country, we weren't even asking to get paid. We're asking first and foremost that all attendance policies be null and void to this point, and that any attendance policy be negotiated with our union so that we can take time off when we're tired. We're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. If I'm too tired to work, it is not only in my interest to mark off, it's in your interest. I wanna explain this for the, it's a, a important safety issue because if I'm tired, that millisecond of, uh, of reaction time that I have lost, could be your life, your life, your child's life, that that we would, some incident or some uh, trespassers or whatever, we would, we're much quicker to react and blow the, the loudest horn that we can and so on and so forth. So it, it's all part of this, it's all part of the same cloth. I am not, a, I, I'm for paid sick time, let me assure you. But I'm also saying the railroads are, disingenuous at best if they are trying to portray to the public that we they just that we are only asking for money we're asking for quality of life changes that enable us to gain some agency over our lives so that we can be off to attend to the important events that we have in our own lives whether that's to get a root canal or or that's to uh be it our child's christening or our parents' funeral. We need to be able to have time off to recharge and to maintain the social politic, and political associations that we are guaranteed under the Constitution as democratic rights, which we can't exercise if we can't even take one part of one day off to make a union meeting. It, much less anything else. I just, that was an example. So I wanted to ask Jeff, um, like, can we get into sort of hypotheticals here of, uh, you know, how are workers affected by the current sort of policies of, of the real corporations, the carriers? Uh, like, like uh, 
in what ways does it affect a worker if they're trying to, you know, if they're sick and they need to go to a hospital or if their kid, uh, something happens to them and they need to attend to their kid? I mean, is it really draconian how they're sort of treating those kind of issues? Oh, yeah. Uh, they're, uh, they're penalizing these people. And in some cases, it's termination. Uh, you know, there, there was another case of a, a guy that his son was injured over um, Super Bowl weekend. And the BNSF, one of their policies is called high impact days. So they usually take off so many points when you take off. But if it's what they declare as a quote unquote high impact day, it's more points. So he would have to be with his son that had a collapsed lung, it would have cost him two thirds of his points to be there for you know two days or whatever. This, this is absolutely wrong. And the railroads will deny this. The railroads will deny that they have draconian policies. But if that's the case, if, if they're, they're going to deny this, why did they fight so hard when the president uh, uh, suggested giving people three events off a year to go to the doctor and he put all these restrictions on it and the carriers were fighting tooth and nail on it? So, you know, they, they're, they're really inconsistent in the way they do things. And uh, the, the workers that I've talked to are just fed up. Uh, I saw in Railway Age, uh, one of the, I, it was, I think the short lines were together. And one of the speakers said that we've got to find a way to repay it, repair uh, relations uh, with, our, with our labor force. They're not gonna do it. I, you know, they, it's been, there's been so many years of dehumanizing these people. And that's that's the way they feel. They they feel dehumanized. That uh, the animosity is, is built up to uh, epic proportions and it's not gonna dissipate until they give in. And they're gonna have to give, now they're gonna have to give a lot more than, than they would have if they would have just been a little bit reasonable. Well, and like, like to kind of hop in on that, the, the question I was going to um, kind of pose to Jeff and Mary Lee is like, you know, again, if, if, if it's not really about money when we're talking about paid sick days for railroad workers, again, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the billions in revenue that they're raking in to say nothing of the billions and billions that they're, you know, spending on stock buybacks and shareholder dividends, right? But it's also um, not, you know, about money when you think about like, you know, what that investment in your workforce would mean for the quality of service, uh, the longevity of workers' lives and careers, so on and so forth. So then what is it about, right? And, and to me, it seems like they won't budge on this because it's about control, right? Like, like I said, like right when I, I was learning about why BNSF Railway would institute this kind of horrible policy. And they're not the only ones. Other other carriers have instituted similar policies. It was like um, the, the, the reason to do that, again, is to fit this horrifying business model right, that runs workers into the ground. Because if workers have a little more ability to dictate their own schedules, 
right? Then, you know, that 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 acknowledges their dignity and decision-making power as human beings instead of just treating them as warm flesh bags who are at your beck and call 24-7, 365, right? So, like, so my question to, to, to Jeff and Mary Lee is, like, does that track, does it feel like, you know, as far as the rail carriers not wanting to address staffing issues or, or scheduling policies, that it's it's not about money, it's really just a question of, controlling your workforce as much as possible? I think that's part of it. Uh, it. It doesn't help them to further chase the almighty dollar at the expense of, of actually even moving freight. So I, I do think that that is a part of it. I think the biggest thing is that they know that they're, they, they're un, they can be unscathed. They've been carrying out this kind of mess. They have totally destroyed the railroad portion of the supply chains over the last, I would, I would extend it to 10 years, quite frankly, when I saw it really begin to occur on the BNSF line. They've been able to do it with impunity, with impunity. They have said from the very beginning of over this, of three, beginning three years ago, that we're not budging on shit. We're not we're not going to budge. We will not negotiate. We will fulfill the, the minimum under the Railway Labor Act because we'll show up. But they have not bent on anything, anything. Even this raise that everybody uh, elevates to something like the greatest, best raise I've ever seen on the railroad, that only tells you the weakness of us and our unions for the last 50 years because we haven't seen a good wage agreement on the railroads since the early 70s. We go back and look and see what money a railroad made in the early 70s, a brakeman or a conductor or an engineer, versus today in real dollars. We're not even keeping up with inflation on this 24 um, uh, compounded 22% increase. So it, even at that, I think it would have not it would have passed, not uh, unanimously, of course, but it, it would have passed. But nothing will be approved by our, our membership, that is mine and uh, my brothers and sisters in the operating crafts and all the other unions as well, until and unless these crucial issues of quality of our lives, getting being able to extricate ourselves from being under the the behest of the railroad for 90% of every living breath we take of every day. That's what they want with this. Uh, I don't even use high-vis because I think it's a cynical, insulting, let's be cute. Put, it, put, a, put the lipstick on the pig, ha, ha, ha. But it's still a pig. And I, 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 if we weren't on, on air, I would use more colorful language. It's a pig. It's a, it's an insult to pigs, quite frankly. So until we get there, we will we will see continued attrition on the railroad. They talk about uh, recruiting and retaining workers. We're seeing an exodus of workers, workers who are experienced, workers with 17 years seniority, 20 years seniority, over 20 years seniority that have honed their craft, that are good at what they do, they're capable. They're, and, and we're 
the the railroad bosses are shoving them right out of the industry with these these uh, types of quality of life issues that they refuse to negotiate on. You will see. I I will. I don't generally make predictions, but I'm predicting a big bigger exodus once people get back pay that they haven't paid us for uh, for the last three years and whatever else they can get. Many, many people are looking for another job. There's there's no incentive to stay on the railroad and there's big incentive to leave. And I think the numbers will bear that out in the coming weeks. Well, and uh, as far as the pay, I, I do have a couple of statistics on that. Everybody talks about the 24%. Well, actually what it is, it's 4.4% a year. Last year in 2021, the uh, average rise in wages was 4.5%. This year, it just came out today, the uh, rise in wages for one month was uh, 0.6%. So we'll do five or 6% this year, the average rise in wages. So it's really on the low end of mediocre. And they talk about this big bonus that people are getting. It's not a bonus. The railroads, Warren Buffett, Blance Fritz, Katie Farmer, have been able to hold these guys' money for three years. What other industry can they do that in? Hold workers' money for three years. And the, the administration basically is, uh, uh, now they're the, the uh, de facto HR department of the railroads. And they're the HR department on steroids because they write the agreements and they enforce the agreements and they just leave the workers hanging. So I, I just had a few more questions if, if you guys have time. I, I guess uh, one of the things I wanted to ask um, Marilee and Jeff here is, I, I think it's important for people to know who the real road workers are. And what I mean by that is, and I, I think we talked about this off the air, Marilee, is I think a lot of people have this idea that the railroad workers are like a monolith. You know, it's, oh, it's, they're just like these, they're all white, they're all rural, they're all male, uh, or, or they're all Trump supporters, they're all this. And, you know, it really, I mean, I think, I think treating railroad workers as this monolith of any of those one things, I think it's a crock of shit. So I, I was wondering, what, who are the railroad workers to you and what are your experiences with railroad workers? Because I think there's a lot of diversity amongst the workers. Oh, there definitely is. I, I, I should have, I do these Zooms in different spots in, uh, and I don't have this picture available, but I, I did send it to somebody else, a, a journalist who was working on stuff, a picture of, of just a crew room. People were celebrating a, a Latino workers, uh, Breitman's, uh, retirement. And of those, I think we were about eight or nine of those three were uh, black uh, males. One was a Japanese American or an, uh, an American of Japanese descent. Uh, a couple were white and there was me. So it, it showed that's who we are. That is who we are. We are of all shades of all languages actually. And we're not all rural. We don't have one political opinion. We're not uh, we're not the stereotype American worker, which is offensive to I think every single worker, no matter if they're white male or black women. 
it's it's insulting to assume that we are uh, to assume like we are bags of flesh. I I think is how Max put it. I, that is a beautiful terminology. We're nothing but warm bags of flesh to be used and abused. Uh, also, we're not. You know, I, I I'm trying to think how to say this diplomatically, but I work with people who do have rural backgrounds, and they do carry uh, rural type accents. I don't know how to say this well. And I, I do, and I have very odd phraseology because I lived in different places. So we're all different. We're all different. And just because you hear what you think is a hillbilly accent doesn't mean there isn't an Einstein mind behind it. And that's what I found on the railroad, actually. People are, in, by and large, pretty intelligent. They're, and they are thinking through and trying to figure out what are the next steps in the face of this scab action by the United States government. Because I think we should call it what it is. They scabbed on our struggle. And they used the United States government, a government that is supposed to be by the people and for the people in order to screw not just rail workers, but what is the next step? What about our ILWU longshoremen brothers and sisters on the West Coast who are currently in their own contract fight? Do they have to go to work? Because we, we have to get these supplies. We got to unload these ships. Oh, no, you can't strike. What about the teachers? No, we can't have teacher strikes. We have to educate our youth. We're already two years behind because of the pandemic. Or what about uh, nurses? People are sick. You got to work. We can't let you strike. I think most working people in this country feel it in a visceral sense, this threat that has been used against us and now hangs like Damocles' sword over the heads of the rest of our brothers and sisters in the working class here in this country and around the world, frankly, but we'll, I'm focusing here on the here in the United States because that's the current discussion. Uh, issue we're discussing. Well, and and you you talk about personalities on the railroad. It's it's different personalities because of the the way we work. I mean, it it takes a certain kind of person to do this job. A lot of people aren't cut out for it. You know, you got to be ready to go to work in in uh, an hour and a half, two hours notice, and you meet some really interesting people. You you have to uh, take care of your own pay. You, you've got to check that constantly. Uh, you've got to be well-versed in the agreements we have because when the carriers violate these agreements, which they do all the time, and that's, that's another thing that uh, this tentative agreement leaves so much up in the air that it, it's just bizarre that, uh, you know, we, we had a PEB that, that was uh, uh, enacted on, on these people. And the PEB punted on almost everything except uh, the, the few things that they gave to the carrier. And uh, the, the one they, they did take care of the BMWED on an issue that they've had for years and years. That was the one thing they did for labor. But otherwise, they either punted or told the, the organizations they had to withdraw. Well, you, you have to know that as a worker, because if they do violate these agreements and make you do something against them, you're entitled to extra pay, and you have to turn in for it. You have to keep um, you, you have to keep logs, 
and make sure that uh, your union officials are taking care of this pay for you. It's a, if a, it's a different type of person that works out here, but uh, you, you'd be surprised. And, and one of the things that, that really hampers us is they isolate us so much. You know, it used to be back in the uh, 80s and 90s, we'd have picnics together. We would, uh, you know, we had a softball team, volleyball team. We, we uh, socialized quite a bit and we were really close. They have done an excellent job of isolating uh, the, the cur their current employees. And so, you know, they, they get into this mindset that, well, you know, I've got to take care of myself instead of being active in their union or saying, hey, you know, uh, Mary Lee's a friend of mine. You know, you can't do this to her. But this is, you know, we, we've got to recognize this and we've got to put our foot down. And this is why we need to go to the administration and tell them, look, you can't do this. You know, this is this is wrong what you're doing. Uh, you know, I keep saying that they're dehumanizing these people, but they are. They're, they're socially isolating them. They're uh, working them to death. They're, uh, they, they've got no regards for their families, for the communities that these people live in. You know, it's all about uh, that next billion dollars for Warren Buffett is what it's about. And we, we as the workers have to stop this and say, hey, you know, we've got, we've got family, we've got friends, we've got community, and we've got to take care of this stuff. And you need to let us. I just wanted to add with uh, to what Mary Lee said. I, I think that's a very good pro point you brought up, Mary Lee, about, you know, yeah, there, there are rural workers. Um, you know, there's even workers that, that may be more conservative. And, you know, I've never understood, you know, if people if people want to point out to me, oh, well, I saw this Twitter of a railroad worker that voted for Trump. I don't really care. I, I just don't care at this point, because to me, the, that's that's a completely different issue. I don't care who who you uh, I, I don't care about the politics. I, I care about, you know, this is about getting paid sick leave to workers. Stop changing it into something that it isn't about. You know, that's my view on it. But I don't I, know if you want to add to that, Max. Oh, I, I do. Uh, I, <laughs> I endorse this message. And this is like uh, something that I um, get hung up on quite a bit doing the work that I do. Right. Um, so, you know, love the work that you do, JG, uh, really love this podcast and really glad that we're doing this kind of interview, which as you know, is not something a lot of shows do. Right. Uh, and so uh, every week on my show, working people at the real news and for my segments at breaking points, I try to do as much as I can to lift up the voices of different workers talk to them in depth about their lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles, and really get people to break that sort of ideological crust, right? That convinces us that working people are just, again, faceless meatbags who don't have, you know, a, a, a rich interior lives and deep complex histories and diff and complex ways of thinking and feeling um, and experiencing the world, families that they care about, that they have had their heart broken too. They have lost loved ones. There are things they wanted to do with their lives, right? There's so much that is so precious about every single human life that, we don't actually take the time to appreciate or even acknowledge when we're talking to one another. And so I think one of my life's goals, right, is to do what I can to sort of, you know, uh, push the opposite direction by giving people access to, you know, the actual voices of rank and file workers in different industries. And what I'm always struck by 
right, is we have so much more in common than we have, than we don't, right? There are plenty of things that we like disagree on severely, but I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, it really is a question of like, how much do you respect other people, right? How much do you actually value uh, and uh, the dignity of other human beings, other working people as individuals with human agency, um, because I think, frankly, it gets really dispiriting to see, you know, our fellow leftists, our fellow socialists like, you know, who who understandably believe in a movement based on, you know, working class people banding together and fighting for what they deserve. But then when working people start saying things that they disagree with or, or don't like, uh, you know, then they drop them like a bad habit. Right. And that's not how you build. That's not how you organize. I, I think to give people credit, what people are worried about is that, you know, we can get too focused on building a big tent building up numbers that will start sacrificing our principles and like we'll start making alliances with like white supremacists and and like outright fascists so like we gotta have you know lines in the sand drawn i'm not working with no fascists but like if a guy like i come from a conservative family i grew up very conservative my dad voted for trump in 2016 he's a mexican immigrant he's not a fascist like but but if if he's if we said that on the internet that would be the response from a lot of people who don't see him as a flesh and blood human being. And so if we are actually serious about building or helping to build a robust labor movement, if we are actually serious about building the kind of long lasting, durable solidarity that can get us through the tough times like right now, then we actually have to connect on those kinds of levels. And we have to respect that we're, that we're not, we don't have to agree on everything, but we've got to unite around what, you know, the shared interests that we have have um the the we got to fight against the shared enemies that we have and the other stuff you know as long as it doesn't like you know threaten the very existence of our coalition or members of our coalition we can move forward yeah and and yeah i i'd like to echo that max uh you know and and this is what i've tried to talk about what the the railroads have succeeded in doing is isolating us and and taking us away from exactly what you were talking about you know, and and they delight in this because now we're at each other's throats because you're a Trump supporter and I voted for Obama and Biden and Bernie Sanders and and uh, well, they, um, they want you to be divided because if you're if you're united or you're showing solidarity, then you know you're working against them, right? You know. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, yeah, I uh, th- this is this is the crux about ha- the crux of having time off. You know, where, where we can engage in uh, union activities, when we can engage in social activities, help so I can go out and have a beer with my wife. I mean, you know, and, and engage with other people. Um, this is this is why we have to fight for our time off. And we we in the union movement have gotten so hung up on pay that I, you know, I used to hear this all the time from some of our union leaders. Well, if you want more money, work more. Well, you know what? You can, this, this is where it takes you eventually is where the railroads are. You'll, you know, they're glad to have you work more. In fact, they want to own you. And we've got to put a stop to that. So what's important for me right now that I, I wanted to get into, and I, I, I sort of am saving this uh, for uh, the tail end of this conversation um, and we've come up to it now. So, you know, I keep hearing 
every headline is, oh, you know, Biden and Congress avert uh, <laughs> a rail strike. I'm just, you know, I, I hate this avert term because I mean, really, they're making a rail strike illegal. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're 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 shutting down a, a right to protest. Um, and you know what I wanted to get into is how big is this? I mean, how how big of a deal is this? Is this comparable in some ways to what we've seen in the past? You know, I, I keep thinking about when Reagan just dropped that cinder block essentially on the air traffic controllers. And to me, this is potentially comparable. This is another dropping of a cinder block on the labor movement. JG, I think you're exactly right. I think that I don't think there's a single fighter for in any sense in this country today that doesn't see uh, Ronald Reagan's face when Biden was saying those words. I know I, I could see nothing but Reagan. I lived through the Paco Strait. Um, there were a lot of issues and I'm not going to uh, rehash all that, but this is exactly what it is. It is dropping a cinder block because I think that while the times are different and the struggles are harder in some ways today, I, I think it's very clear that what Reagan was able to do was not just uh, fire the air traffic controllers. He was able to strike fear into the hearts of the of the officers that were in those national and international leaderships of every union in this country and possibly beyond that. He did do that. And that is part of what this attempt is to do today. It was such, it was, it was spoken of the word used frequently in the in the uh, government's speeches was urgency. There's an urgency. This wasn't even up until the 8th, at, I mean, the 9th at midnight 01, where the 8th turns into the 9th. So this is the second, isn't it? I mean, but it, it was, it's all part of the, of the, I, I call it wardrobe dressing. You have to put on all these clothes to appear a certain way. And that was part of that. And to, I think it, it was, I think they are hoping that other trade unionists feel that same threat and don't act in their own interests as forcefully and as solidly as they need to. And I think we should recognize that too. It, they they've have, have upped the stakes, they haven't averted. And I, I think the averting thing is funny too, because you can't, there was no aversion to this because the conditions remain. The only way to avert labor actions from trade unionists who work on the railroad is to fix the causes of this deep, deep anger and, and uh, rage. That's the only way. And none of those things have really been touched. They haven't been touched. We still got it. And whatever form workers' struggles take on rail, on the railroad or off the railroad, I support, I support the fight back. I support it hundred percent and I will defend any worker involved in, in something that, that an employer would seek to, or the government would seek to uh, retaliate against them for exercising their democratic rights. 
I do not think that any kind of physical, I'm not promoting anything like that. That's just, that's an anathema to the type of solidarity and strength that we need as a labor movement. And, and I, I would like to speak to that urgency thing really quickly, because this was three years in the making. And, uh, you know, where was the urgency three years ago? You know, the, the only urgency was that we were starting to win and they couldn't have that. And so now that it, this looks like it's, it's pretty well over, we got another one coming up in 2024. If, if this is so urgent, let's start working on that. But, but we won't because when we create this false sense of urgency, we can get people like the, the uh, workers to do things they wouldn't normally do. And the, the ruling class, the, the oligarchs, like Max likes to call them, they, they know that. They don't feel a sense of urgency, but they expect us to. Yeah, and I, I was just going to add to that. I think a lot of what this comes down to is, you know, I, I mean, I see a lot of people watching the corporate media on this. And, and to be honest, my view is, I mean, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the people in your communities, the people that see your kids, the people that carpool your kids, that 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 go to your parties, that that you drink beer with, that you you know, are we going to trust the people in our communities? Are we going to trust you know what Joe Biden is telling us or what the corporate media is telling us or what Republicans are telling? I mean, to me, it's a no brainer. Um, I don't know if you want to add to that at all. Well, and like I think that. No, I think that that's exactly right. And, um, you know, what's what I think is, um, you know, especially important to underline here, right, as as I think we've all acknowledged, right, is that, um, you know, what is happening to the railroads and what is happening to railroad workers is part of a larger is part of the larger corporate takeover of everything. Right. And I think like that is is what we really need to understand moving forward. And what I can attest to myself, again, as I said, like my job is to interview different workers in different industries uh, week in, week out. And I started to notice, especially over this past year, I was like, wow, you know, uh, we keep hearing the corporate media say like, oh, no one wants to work. We can't hire people. There are help wanted signs everywhere. Then I started talking to workers at Starbucks. Chipotle, uh, workers on the railroads, hospital workers, educators, and I, dollar stores. And I realized that they were all describing the same problems. They were like, we are all being deliberately understaffed. We are all having our schedules deliberately, you know, like made impossible to kind of plan our lives around. Or we are all being worked to the bone to the point that we never see our family, so on and so forth. And so what I think like we all need to recognize and where I think there is hope to build those bonds of solidarity and to actually advance, you know, like uh, our collective interests uh, in a forceful way 
is to identify those points and to realize that they are they are coming from similar sources, right? I'll give two examples, right? So we are talking about how the railroads, a once good job, and in many ways is still one of the best kind of blue collar jobs that you can get, especially if you don't have a college degree, like the pay is one of the, the, the main reasons that people go into it. And, you know, when you're not being run into the ground, sure, the work can be enjoyable. Like there are a lot of things to recommend working on the railroads, but the rail bosses and their Wall Street overlords have turned it into a terrible experience that is running people into the ground, right? But that that's not the only place that that is happening. You know, I, I, we may have mentioned earlier that um, a thousand coal miners at Warrior Met Coal in Deep Red, Alabama, have been on strike for over 600 days. They've been on strike for almost two years now. And their largest stakeholder is BlackRock in New York. Right. And so like like this is like also what they're doing. The workers there went on strike because they said we never get to see our families. Right. You know, like the work that we like, you know, management is pushing us to do things that are that we know to be dangerous. You know, we, we you know, need more time off. We don't ever get to go to T-ball games. We don't get to go to birthdays. We basically spend our waking lives under the crust of the earth and we go home when the rest of our families asleep. They go to school before we wake up. And it's like we're a ghost in our own house. Right. Same shit that, that workers on the railroads have been saying last year, the largest strike in Massachusetts state's history happened at St. Vincent Hospital, where you had uh, this hospital that was owned by an investor-owned healthcare conglomerate giant in, in Texas named Tenant Healthcare that was doing the same shit. It was pushing, um, it, was, it was destroying quality of life for nurses at the hospital because it was piling more patients onto fewer nurses. So the nurse to patient ratio was unmanageable, just like railroaders, like Marilee said, like, it's not like railroaders aren't trying to give the best quality of service. Of course they are. And the railroads are taking advantage of that. But the fact is, if you are on, you haven't slept in three days, your response time is only going to be so sharp. Same thing is happening with healthcare workers. Like they are trying to give the care that they have been trained to give and they care about each one of their patients. But when they're put in this uh, this situation, it is there's no way to win. And you are the one who bears all the burden of that. And again, this is all for the sake of extracting as much profit as as we possibly can. And when I say we, I mean a handful of people, you know, like you know, the, the, the rich are getting richer while the rest of us are getting screwed. And it is happening everywhere. And and like like we've been saying, like we are not actually addressing the crisis at any point, but it's all around us. And and like everyone was freaking out like two years ago when there was that train in LA that got looted, right? And the media's narrative was like, oh my God, crime is rampant. Like we got to stop this crime. We got to like dump more money into police. No one was mentioning the fact that Union Pacific had just done another round of layoffs two weeks before that train was looted. And so like, we're not connecting the dots, but there was a derailment today. A coal car in West Virginia uh, derailed and could have crushed an entire family under a, a, a driving bridge. You can look at the picture pictures online. I had a railroader text me the pictures earlier today. Like, or if a, if a derailment happens because the railroads are investing more in stock buybacks than they are in railroad maintenance, and then a train uh, derails and uh, toxic chemicals like chlorine leak out that could wipe out an entire uh, town if it's not contained in a quick amount of time. Keep in mind, the railroads are trying to get 
uh, two person crews down to one person on these like three mile long trains. If you got one person there and you have a derailment and you have a toxic substance leaking out into the public and the railroads have slashed and burned all the resources that you would need to respond to that quickly, you are putting everyone at risk. And that is happening all around us. But we're only talking about the crisis that was averted with a rail strike. Last thing I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, we've talked about Biden and I think for the railroad workers, I mean, it, it, it's an understatement to say that this is a disappointment uh, because Biden said that he was, you know, going to be the most pro-union president. That was a promise he made and he has betrayed that. I would say it's more than a disappointment. It's a betrayal. Um, are there any people uh, working in the political sphere right now that you think uh deserve any credit for this and who who i guess who do you see as as letting um the railroad workers down and who do you see as having at least tried to do something because i know bernie sanders uh alongside even a few republicans uh tried to get the paid sick leave vote uh but it, it seems like a lot of politicians even on the progressive end of things weren't standing up for the railroad workers in this case. And I, I was just wondering, is this bigger than just a Biden betrayal? Is this a betrayal by uh, a lot of the people in the political sphere? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Uh, I, I, in terms of who actually did anything, it's easy to be, to vote no against ramming this agreement down our throats when you already in your caucuses counted up what votes there were. You knew it wasn't going to pass, so that gives that gives more right, uh, more conservative as well as more people that are seen as left of center more cover. They can vote, but it but they know in advance it's not going to mean anything. I, I believe they did do that. You hear uh, McCon uh, what's his name McConnell talking all the time. Well, we have the votes. Your Schumer, they know what votes they got. They caucus actively, and they know that. So I don't give too much credence to uh, any of that because it's an easy free ride for many people. So, oh, I supported the rail workers. The only person that I, I saw actually doing something was Bernie Sanders. I'm, I, I just have to say that. He stood up and he averted an, a premature vote on the whole thing to try to shut down any discussion on it early on. Having said that, I think that that all rail workers are in the process of kind of evaluating what this meant. I think what it truly means for not just rail, but for every other working person in this country or work and family farmer for that matter, is that we need our own party. Neither of those two parties, neither of the two electoral parties that exist and and have a corner on the market, that is, you know, they got it sewed up represent the interests of working people or farmers. And I think ultimately that question is posed, that we need a political party, which includes the electoral side of, of that political party, that will function in our own interest, in the interests of workers, because clearly neither the Democrats nor the Republican parties are falling on the side of labor or or working people, or men, and, and that includes many of the other uh, issues that face working people that we call by other names. Uh, I, I, 
for example, the women's rights movement. I'm not talking about identity politics as it's thrown around the media, but we all, it's not just laborers, but it's our uh, unionists who work, but we also, also have other issues for uh, better public education, all kinds of things, better education, women's rights, uh, furthering the, the legacy of the civil rights movement and more deeply entrenching a sense of equity in our country. All those things are, are part of, of what such a party could discuss uh, and adopt a program of action on. So I, I just think that's it. I think there has to be another one. I, I think this is, these two parties are so bankrupt. Are, it's, it's pathetic and they're bankrupt. They have no policy, uh, no proposals, no economic proposals. They have, and they don't, they can't and don't represent our interests because we as working people don't control that party. We're, con we're acted upon. So I think the workers have to quit being acted upon and become the actors on the electoral stage in other places. I, I want to kick it over to Jeff to get his comments on all of that. But I, I just wanted to say, I think, you know, another thing I hear is uh, when we're criticizing Biden on this, I've heard people say, well, the Republicans would have done the same thing. And I'm always thinking to myself, yeah, well, we know that. I mean, that that's why we're sort of mad at Biden, because, you know, I, I think. I think we 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 are expecting better, uh, even even if we're, you know, a little bit I, I've been disillusioned with the Democratic Party for a while now, but we expect more. We know what to expect, um, maybe from a lot of these Republican candidates, in my view. But, you know, th the fact that Biden would say he's going to be the most pro-union president and then does this to me, it's a complete betrayal. But, uh, Jeff, if you want to add anything. Yeah, uh as a former Democratic politician, uh, I have to say that I am thoroughly disgusted with, with this whole situation. Uh, the people that I would say really work for us, Bernie Sanders, of course, Jamal Bowman in the House, uh, he was instrumental in getting us into the House. I think I read where Peter DeFazio was actually involved. I know... Uh, He's given the, the railroads hell over uh, their actions as far as, as what they've done with their shippers, their employees, and things like that uh, in the Surface Transportation Board hearing. So I've got to give him some credit. Um, of course, the president, uh, he, was, he was awful. But I've got to throw in there Marty Walsh. He, Marty Walsh was a, a, a union member, and I believe it was asked me. And his union, his former union, should call him out on his actions because he was awful. Pete Buttigieg, uh, if you look at the, the 2008 um, Rail Safety Improvement Act, he has, he has got uh, say over the scheduling of the employees of the railroad. He has been missing an action. And, you know, it's not because he hasn't gotten letters. But he has gotten he has gotten all kinds of correspondence, and uh, he's just uh, dropped the ball. And I, I think he's just done an awful job as Secretary of Transportation. Uh, of course, Speaker Pelosi, she was awful. Uh, leader uh, Majority Leader Schumer, uh, and um, you know that's that's probably my answer to to that question. You know. There's more villains than there is heroes. Let's put it that way. 
Max, I don't know if you want to add to to any of those points made uh, in closing here, but I, I mean, this whole situation is just, I mean, I, I just find everything that, that has happened so far to be really repulsive. And, um, you know, I, I think the Democratic Party is in for a rude awakening over this. Um, if you want to comment on any of those thoughts or, or Jeff and Marley's thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, this is going to bite the Democrats in the ass. And, you know, it, it, that could take a number of forms, right? It could lead to a number of people disgruntled, quote unquote, you know, disillusioned, dismayed workers uh, seeing if like maybe the Republicans will do better. Right. And well, vote I, that I, I was just going to add to that real quick, Max, is, uh, you know, and I agree with uh, Merrilee's point, but th- there's going to be Republicans that said, oh, we were for the paid sick leave. Ted Cruz is going to say that Rubio. Holly, uh, and even if that was just a cynical move on their part, they're they're gonna like attack Democrats over this. I think it's an unfortunate situation. It is, but the the silver lining there is that you know scratch a Republican and you're gonna find a pretty truly awful voting record. You know you're gonna see like they 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 can make these sort of symbolic gestures when the stakes are very low. Um, you know like now, like when when that's all their vote is, you know, is is kind of symbolic so that they can say later retroactively that they supported something. Um, but. Yeah, like when it comes to the showdown, like who is actually there when it matters, right? Uh, again, like if you actually cared about this, this this problem didn't come from nowhere, as we've all said. This has been happening for decades, right? And like the the lay the again the latest round of layoffs where the carriers eliminated over thirty percent of their workforce that began in two thousand fifteen. Has Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or anyone on the Republican side said shit about that over the past five years? I don't think that they have. Have they said anything about the striking coal miners at Warrior Met Coal? Even though Republicans love to go to coal country every election year and talk about how they support the humble coal miner because Democrats are going to cut their jobs uh, by regulating them out of existence, yada, yada, yada. But when you have a thousand workers who desperately need your help, they're nowhere to be found. Right. And so, like, again, I think that workers don't forget who's actually there for them when it counts. And and sadly, you know, the Republicans like, yeah, like it's a very low bar to clear in that regard. And Democrats are still largely managing to trip over it, right? Because it's not just this, as we said, like, yes, there are things that Biden has done that people can point to it. And a lot of it is like an old old world style of thinking. Biden thinks about like being pro labor is like job creation, right? Can I create jobs in people's districts? And and that happened, right? With um a lot of the money that went into uh you know municipal and state budgets through the COVID uh, relief packages, so you get some more public sector work. Um, the Chips Act, right? There are going to be jobs that come from that. So it's not like he hasn't done anything. But when it, it but anyone can say that they're pro labor, you know, in easy times when you actually have to kind of like, you know, put some skin in the game and you have to pick a side and you're going to have to take the shit that you're getting from like people in the industry, the real bosses, like Warren Buffett's calling you up, yelling at you. Like if you actually had the cojones to say, you know, like I'm standing up with the workers on this one, even if it means I'm taking shit from these guys, that's what's going to get people to keep coming out and voting for you. Right. And sadly, the Democrats on that side 
aren't doing nearly enough. They've let the PRO Act just die on the Senate floor. They haven't made it a legislative priority, even though it would revolutionize labor relations in this country, which are heavily stacked in favor of the bosses. Um, they uh, didn't do anything when Scott Walker was taking, you know, like a, a, a battering ram to public sector workers in Wisconsin uh, with Act 10, turning Wisconsin into a right to work state a couple years later. Obama campaigned on um, passing the Employee Free Choice Act, and then he dropped that like a bad habit the second uh, union workers helped get him elected in 2008. As we speak right now, um, from from last year to this year, the number of new union election filings has like gone way up. The number of union election wins, the number of strikes, those things are going up. And yet the National Labor Relations Board is is saying they're going to have to be furloughing people because they haven't raised their budget in nine years. So when it comes to actually investing the resources that working people need so that they have at least some support when they're taking on the bosses who are much richer and much more powerful than they are, Democrats aren't actually showing up and people are going to remember that. And, and I think what's probably going to be more likely and and also this is happening at a time when union workers like the folks at unite here are canvassing their asses off in states like nevada and arizona to save the democrats asses they're in georgia right now i was talking to some like an hour ago and and this is how the democrats are rewarding them and so i think that you're not going to get a massive like wave of people rushing to the Republicans. Cause again, we we're not dumb. We've all seen that Republicans aren't any better. Um, but I think you're going to have more people kind of disillusioned and exiting the political process, um, which, you know, is a, sort of a negative politicization. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the kind of um, feeling that I'm hearing from people. And so the, the, I guess the one thing I would say in terms of what we can do, um, you know, I have been heartened talking to so many workers like Mary Lee and Jeff and the amazing folks on the railroads. I think that one good thing to come from this whole long drawn out miserable process is seeing the solidarity across these 12 different craft unions, seeing people in these unions kind of come together and say like, we, we are separate fingers, but we can come together as a powerful fist. Like if we work more closely together and you could see kind of rank and file, you know, like folks talking through that over the past year, I think that's hopeful. And there are people who, yes, everyone's exhausted because of this three-year contract fight. But because the carriers have dragged it out for so long, we're now two years away to the next one, as Jeff mentioned. And so we're close enough that people are like, OK, here's what we learned from this contract fight. We've got a, like a year to prepare and we're going to go hard at them in the next contract fight. So like there is momentum to build. There is, you know, like a, a path forward to, to, to forge for all of us. We can't just say, oh, well, the, the ruling class, you know, is going to always put its hand on the scale and we can't do anything we have to as merrily said as workers we have to band together and actually you know advance our interests and our own voice uh, with our own power instead of just sort of you know hoping that some benevolent politician will give us what we want if we vote for them i, I should ask really quickly too and I, I i'm not saying this to to endorse this or anything I, i'm just wondering if it's a possible thing that could happen uh, but e even though we're saying the railroad strike has been averted, that's what we're hearing in the media. Is there still a possibility of, I, I guess, like these sort of like an unsanctioned sort of strike or, or like a wildcat strike? Um, could we see, you know, workers angry enough to, to go against what uh, sort of has been decided? 
I kind well, of I think doubt- that, that that's a possibility. I think it's a possibility. But I think that the lesson that workers learned through this backstabbing that occurred, that as we process it and it becomes part of our collective memory, I think that the idea of aversion of averting a strike is totally almost laughable. There will be actions. I, I, I cannot predict what they will look like, but workers are, are not gonna just say, oh, oh, okay, well, if the Congress thinks that we should be serfs, I guess we should be serfs. So that's not, we know that's not gonna happen, right? We know that. So as we understand this and the total treachery of the Democratic Party and the total uh, alignment of both the Democratic and the Republican parties in favor of the one point of the ten percent of one percent of the rich in this country is not a lesson that is lost on anybody. And I think that whatever actions that we should band together as fighters, as fellow workers, with anything that may arise that we are not necessarily anticipating. What I'm saying is there will be continual, there's skirmishes every day. I think that one thing that is, that is important for us to explain a little bit is that there are skirmishes every day. I, for instance, was turned into HR at, in May of, uh, of 2020 after the pandemic. Those lessons, I mean, I eventually was able to fight it back because I was so radical that I thought they should pr provide sanitizer and disinfectants. So we learn, we internalize the lessons, we regroup and we get ready to come right back and fight the next fight and join any skirmishes that may take place. For example, if I hear of anything in Chicago, I'm gonna get in my car and I'm gonna bring hot coffee, hopefully that part, and join. I do defend anybody's actions, anybody who takes actions within the context of democratic, uh, fair actions that are sanctioned by our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. Any actions of that nature, any solidarity actions, please let us know, let me know, because I, I will add my this, whatever weight I can to that. And Jeff, I know it's you want to. What was that? What was that, JG? Oh, I, I was going to say, I know you had something to add there. You said, I doubt, but. Uh, as far as wildcat strike, I doubt it. Um, I, I would be extremely surprised because it, um, it would have to be organized by local union officials who take their uh, orders from what we call a general committee, which would be like a joint council who take their uh, orders from our national division. So I, I, I think it would be extremely difficult. And the, the fact that we're all so dispersed uh, makes it hard to organize something like a, a wildcat strike. But uh, um, I, I can see other job actions being taken. Um, you know, people are, people are sick and fed up with this stuff. But like what kind of actions? And, uh, I'm yeah, just curious. One, one, What's that? I was. I said, what kind of actions uh, could you see people taking? Um, they they could. Uh, well, I 
I, I hate to give anything away, but uh, they could do things to legally not show up for work. I mean, if, if they coordinated it, and uh, it wouldn't take very many people, especially with the low employment levels in the railroad, to uh, stop trains. And the, and the fact that right now trains are sitting around all over, uh, just ask the Surface Transportation Board. You know, they, uh, they've been going after the railroads for a couple of years now because of their actions. And this is another thing, you know, that, that everybody was talking about the damage to the supply chains that a strike would do. These people have been doing da damage to the supply chains since 2017 when they all uh, uh, implemented this uh, precision scheduled railroading, which has nothing to do with precision. There's no schedules and God knows it's not railroading. So, um, you know, and, and one thing I wanted to bring up, because you, you mentioned President Obama. In 2015, he signed an executive order saying that all uh, federal contractors would have to give their employees seven days of sick pay. The thing is, he carved out the railroads and he exempted them from, from this and they're federal contractors. So, you know, it, it just seems like, uh, to me, my my guess was he had a he had a conversation with Warren Buffett, just like uh, Joe Biden did, and uh, this is where we are. And just to like kind of um, really drive home a point that Marilee made earlier, um, again, I'm I'm just being honest with people listening to this because I I keep saying I understand why you know. We know that the media has failed railroad workers catastrophically. So first, I want to start by just acknowledging all the people who have failed these workers for so long. And it's just it's it's so unjust. And I and I it hurts to think about, you know, how much the media has ignored this for so long. And then when it does pay attention, right, it's so much corporate propaganda. You barely ever get to hear from workers themselves. We, you know, it's taken a Herculean effort to even get corporate media to talk about the issues that we've been talking about here. Um, and so like that has a cumulative effect of, of people not knowing what's going on, people not sympathizing with workers. That's a huge failure. We've been talking about the, all the ways that politicians have failed these workers. Um, and, you know, again, like we can look inwards at ourselves and think about what we could have done better, what we should do better moving forward and learn from this. Right. But I say that to say that I can understand why in that sort of uh, uh, landscape, people genuinely didn't know about this. Right. And then um, when they did hear about it, only like a week or even maybe a couple of days before they're being told uh, the, the economy might come to a grinding halt because of a strike. If that's all the information they're going off of, I get why they're concerned, especially when we're in a, the midst of a cost of living crisis, right? We are still limping on after going through a major pandemic, right? Uh, the supply chain is already, you know, under great duress from all of those things, the war in Ukraine, extreme weather from climate change, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, it's already kind of a lot for your average working person who's who's already struggling to kind of make their bills and, and all that stuff to think about extra costs that they may have to incur as we head into the holidays. I get that. Right. But what I want to stress to people as Marilyn and, and Jeff have said, you know, beautifully 
um, and I would really ask everyone to take it to heart, we didn't avert anything, right? You're going to get the effect of a strike, whether you want one or not, because in fact, you already are, right? Because workers have already been quitting this industry in record uh, numbers, um, either altogether or they've been, you know, you know, running and being refugees in passenger service, you know, even if that means forgoing years of accrued benefits and seniority and so on and so forth. They're just like, I can't make it to retirement in the freight industry. I got to get out of here. And like Marilee said, I've heard the same thing from a lot of folks over the course of the year. They said if if what we think is going to what we think will happen happens. Right. If Congress and Biden squash this, rip the rug out from under us at the last minute, give the rail carriers everything they want. And the rail carriers just take that as a sign to keep doing what they're doing. I'm out. I can't I can't do it anymore. Right. And this is already at a time when, as we said, trains are lying idle. Ports are backed up. Workers are dying on the job or in their sleep because they're being run into the ground. That crisis is already here and you listening are already paying for it. Right. The prices that are being passed on to shippers are already being passed on to you. The delays caused by these business practices that are jamming up the ports and causing us to move less freight. That is already like wrecking the supply chain. And, and the Biden and Congress have done nothing to address it. And now that this has all played out now that the 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 you know the politicians have kind of stepped on the the uh their boots on the neck of railroad workers most people that i've talked to have said like i'm gonna i'm looking for an exit strategy i'm looking for a way out of this industry and so that means you're gonna have more slowdowns that means you're gonna have you know like more pushes from the rail carriers to get crews down to one person automate more things so on and so forth so it's going to get worse and we have to keep Caring, we have to take the amount of interest and care that we have in this now and keep it moving, right? Keep building from that. We can't just forget about this when the news cycle moves on. I just wanted to say real quick, I'm glad that you pointed that out at the end um, because it, it goes into what Marilee was saying earlier that, you know, you could see a lot of railroad workers just, it's an, it, it could be an exodus in the future of railroad workers. And if people are worried with, with what's happening now and Oh, what if a slowdown happens or how will this affect the economy? Well, I, I, I think they're going to be in for a surprise if railroad workers say we've had enough and we're looking for an exit strategy. So I thought that was very important that you brought that up. And, I, you know, I just want to say thank you so much, um, Max, for helping put this together and coming on the show. And thank you so much, Jeff and Marilee, uh, for giving your time so graciously to talk about this issue. It's really appreciated. Uh, how can my listeners keep up? with the work of Railroad Workers United and also Max, uh, your work at The Real News. Well, I'll just hop in because I want Marilee and Jeff to have the last word. So uh, if that's cool with you guys, just real quick. Uh, yeah, please um, check us out at The Real News Network so we can keep doing coverage like we've been doing all year on the railroads. All your support is is uh, essential and we're in our end of year fundraiser right now. So if you can, please head on over to therealnews.com forward slash support. Check out my podcast, Working People. We've got a lot of great interviews with railroad workers on there. Some more coming. Um, and yeah, you can find me at at on Twitter at Maximilian, M-A-X-I-M-I-L-L-I-A-N underscore A-L-V. And check out my segments uh, on breaking points. I'm going to have a railroad one this weekend and a Starbucks one as well. well I'm going to give a plug for Railroad Workers United. Uh, it's a oh, it's an organization that you can join whether or not you're a rail worker. You can join as a solidarity member. Uh, 
if you're a rail worker, I want to especially invite you to join as a rail worker and be a part of our democratic uh, railroad caucus. We're from all different unions, from all different crafts. We've come together in order to fight in the most effective way possible to get uh, to begin to make some gains in the lives of railroad workers is the short version. It's railroadworkersunited.org. Just come on, you'll see our welcome page. We have a wealth of information. Feel free to come on and join us, join our organization. And thank you so much, JG, I, for allowing us this opportunity to have this discussion. Thank you. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I'd like to um, echo what Mary Lee said and uh, what Max said. And I would also like to tell people, uh, start tuning in to podcasts like this, to Max's shows. I've got a couple of Max's shows that I've, I've got to watch yet. Uh, you've got a, a friend of mine on there, Marcus Derby, that I, I wanted to uh, see his show. But you can, you can get the real, the real gist of what's going on there. And then when you see uh, coverage, like I saw of this ABC news outlet, the, the way they covered the strike, uh, send them an email or uh, put in their comments of, you know, what, what you just put up is wrong and we can prove it to you. So correct the mainstream media when you can and uh, uh, keep paying attention to uh, podcasts like this and some of the alternative news sources, and uh, you can help a lot. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeff Kurtz, Marilee Taylor, and Maximilian Alvarez. Check out Railroad Workers United and the Real News Network. As always, if you enjoy the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike to Parallax with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.